0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
1: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. 9
2: million Americans have some kind
1: of active interface with incarceration,
2: which means if incarceration were a city, it would be the largest city in the US.
1: Today, guest host Sarah Shotland joins me to discuss mass incarceration, why it's happening, and what you can do about it. I'm Beth from the right, and I'm Sarah from the left. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics.
2: No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Thank you all so much for your kind notes during my vacation. I really appreciated it. And Sarah is now at the beach. It's like we switched places. But don't worry, I have another Sarah here. So just like you heard from our typical Sarah from the left last week in her awesome conversations with Joe Kroger, uh, Maggie, Abby, Carissa and Maddie. Which I loved. I do have some things to say in defense of capitalism, but I'm going to hold those thoughts until Sarah and I are back together. But if you heard those episodes and liked it, today we have another great guest host. So Sarah Shotland reached out as one of the many awesome people who submitted um, to come onto the show and guest host. And we are going to have what I'm sure is going to be a fascinating conversation about mass incarceration. But we're actually going to host the show just like Sarah Stewart-Holland and I do. So we're going to go through a little bit of news and then have mass incarceration incarceration as our main topic, and then we'll end with what's on our minds outside of politics. So Sarah, I'm going to shut up now and ask you to tell everybody about yourself. Well, hi. I'm so happy to be here. My name
2: is Sarah Shotland. I'm a novelist, an English professor at Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'm the co-founder of Words Without Walls, which brings creative writing classes to jails, prisons, and rehabilitation centers in Pittsburgh. I'm also a huge Pantsuit politics fan, which is why I was so excited to get to talk to you. I've lived in Pittsburgh for almost 10 years, but I'm originally from Dallas, Texas. And both of those places are surprisingly similar politically.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: Big states that have sort of blue big cities and big swaths of big open red in the middle. So that was really surprising to me when I moved to Pennsylvania,
1: that it was so similar to Texas. Okay. Tell me what kind of novels you write.
2: I'll say this. I went to undergrad in New Orleans. And so my first novel, *Junket*, is about New Orleans. So if you are a person who's interested in the amazing life of that city, you might really like that book and you can get it on Amazon or in bookstores.
1: That's amazing. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. When I heard your submission, I was like, I love her accent. You can tell that she's lived in multiple places. (laughs) This is going to be great. So let's dive in because there's a lot of news to cover. First, happy Tuesday, everyone. Paul Manafort's trial starts today. (laughs) This, <laughs> yes, this trial is expected to last for three weeks, and I just want everyone to remember that Paul Manafort's indictment is not about the Trump campaign's collusion with Russia or any of the sort of headline making stories around the president himself. Paul Manafort's trial is principally about money and it is about money that he obtained from a political party in Ukraine and from Ukrainian political figures and from the Ukrainian government at one point that he did not pay taxes on, that he lived a very lavish lifestyle on in the United States, and the fact that he was acting as a lobbyist on behalf of these parties without properly disclosing that in the United States. So if you are a person, for example, who worries about foreign influence in the United States in the form of immigration, I would expect that you would be triply outraged by someone being funded by a foreign government not paying taxes on any of that money and not being transparent about what he is doing. Yes. And I'm sure everyone's very consistent on those points. Yeah, of
2: course. We're always consistent. <laughs> One of the things that I, I really was picking up on when I was reading about this, this weekend in terms of the lavishness of his lifestyle and the really outrageous way he was spending money is I kept thinking, Man, you're really spending it like you didn't earn it. That's you are really burning other people's money. (laughs) He drives it like he stole it, doesn't he? (laughs) He totally does. Like, okay. Yeah. You're you're demonstrating that this money was not earned. You know, in terms of sort of his association with Trump,
1: he sure is swampy. He's pretty swampy. Sure is swampy. <laughs> it's interesting. The witness list for this trial is like here's a guy from Airbnb, and here's somebody from a really expensive clo- really expensive clothing store, um, and so you can just tell like. We have this whole narrative about what this means for the president, and it it might eventually mean something for the president. But this trial is not about the president. This is a white collar crime trial. Now, that said, I want you to know that Manafort's team has tried to get this whole thing tossed because they're saying it's too far out of the scope of what Robert Mueller and his people are are there to do. And the judge has considered that argument and has said, no, they followed the money from pro-Russia influences directly to a person who was the chairperson of the Trump campaign for a while, and they are charged with investigating crime that they uncover in the process of investigating Russia's interference in our election, and this falls within that squarely. So there are going to be two trials for Paul Manafort, one in Northern Virginia and one in Washington, D.C., Those venues are selected because you have to charge people where they did the crime. And so the prosecution charged Paul Manafort in the locations where the specific crimes occurred. And then Manafort's lawyers would typically be the people to say, nah, let's just have one combined trial because it's too expensive to do this twice. We don't want to put the defense through this twice. But they have elected to keep two different venues, and that is partially because they believe they will receive a friendlier jury pool in Northern Virginia than in Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. Um,
2: (laughs) Do you think that this is going to change anyone in the public's mind about what they already think about the Robert Mueller investigation? Trump's associations with various people. I mean, is this going to impact public perception of anything,
1: do you think? I don't know at this point if public perception on these points is capable of movement. It's a question (laughs) that I ask myself all the time. I think what's tricky about this for Robert Mueller's team is that they, they have to go prove their case in a court of law now, not in the court of public opinion. And proving this case in a court of law is going to be very unsexy in a lot of ways. You know, this is about, like, do you have receipts? And they do. Mm. And you can see that in the indictment. You can see that this is not a fishing expedition. It is not a witch hunt. Like, they have a very detailed list of money moving in and out of Paul Manafort's possession, essentially, and how he was spending it. But they've got to go prove that now in a way that just has nothing to do with the story that everybody wants to read and write. And so I think it'll be a major sideshow Honestly, the president would be best served by staying out of it completely, though, and saying, this has nothing to do with me. This is about his lobbying activity. And if I have fault here, it's perhaps in not properly vetting this person before he came into my campaign, but he was in it for a very short amount of time because once we discovered this, we made a change. He's just incapable of doing that. But that would be the way to handle it, I think.
2: I would agree with you completely, and I would also agree that it seems highly unlikely that he is <laughs> capable of saying those very rational things that you just said.
1: Yes. And look, those, very, those are very rational things, and they're good spin. I mean, the fact of the matter is— I think they knew exactly what they were getting with this guy because he was a known quantity. Paul Manafort is not a name that people in Washington, D.C. just suddenly heard. It's not even like a Corey Lewandowski who really was kind of a nobody until he came in with the Trump group. Like this – he is swampy. He was the establishment guy brought in to help him figure out how to get through the convention. And so it's just a – it's a really difficult position to be in. But he makes it worse constantly by by trying to say – What a nice guy that this shouldn't have happened to. Come on.
2: Yeah. And he even Trump, I even heard him say the points that you just made where he is a known quantity. He worked for Ronald Reagan. He worked for Bob Dole. You knew what you were getting. You you hired him for a reason.
1: That's right. So it's a, it'll be interesting to watch. I would give a whole lot if I had the ability to just go sit in the courtroom and observe this trial and like report back on it every day to everyone because I think it's going to be legally fascinating. I think it's going to be legally fascinating to see how these lawyers do and don't confine this to actually what needs to be proven in this case.
2: Is the trial closed to the media? You know,
1: I don't know the answer to that. I don't think that it is.
2: Because maybe we will get some some perfect reporter who reports
1: back to us each day and does what what your wish is. I'm sure that we will get tons of reporting on it. I just feel like I would bring a little different spin. So if anybody's out there thinking we need to get her to Northern Virginia stat, like I'll be on a plane. It'd be awesome. Okay, let's talk about something else because we we're late on this story, but it's really important for us to discuss the tragic and violent, horrific death of Nia Wilson in Oakland, California last weekend. So briefly the facts, which I hope that you have heard somewhere else, are that 18-year-old Nia and her sister Latifah, who was 26, were headed home from a family event on a train. As they were on the platform transferring to another train, a 27-year-old man, just out of nowhere, stabbed them with a knife. And Nia was killed. Her sister was injured. Her sister shared that after Nia had been stabbed, the man who did the stabbing, and I don't want to say his name or talk any more about him than we have to kind of cleaned his knife and like stared at the two of them. So it's just a (sighs) horrible, horrible circumstance. The police in Oakland have compared it to a prison yard assault and the BART police chief, that's the public transit there in Oakland, um, told reporters it was the most vicious attack he has ever seen in his very long career. It was the third death in less than a week. In the BART system from unrelated attacks. So that's very troubling. What has really been difficult to process in this case is that the police have been saying there's no evidence that this was a hate crime. But a white man stabbed a black woman in a wholly unprovoked and gruesome way. And so it's that's just a hard thing to hear that it wasn't a hate crime. His family says he's been struggling with mental illness. He has been living on the streets. These are topics that I'm certain will return to on a more systemic basis in a few minutes, Sarah. Social media has been very active in trying to bring attention to this case and ensure that people know who Nia Wilson was and that she is seen in the light that is deserving for her, uh, which has been difficult because immediately after this happened, a local television station showed a picture of her holding what looked like a gun. It was actually a cell phone case that was shaped like a gun, but it it really feeds into the portrayal of African Americans in the media in a negative light, even when they are the victims of crimes. And so, um, this has been a really awful, awful story. And we are really saddened by what's happened here. And our thoughts and prayers are with the Wilson family and with everyone who feels even more afraid today than they did a week ago because of living in black skin in America.
2: Yeah, it's such a tragic story. As I was um, reading, accounts of it, the thing I kept thinking about was how young Nia was and how when something like this happens in your family, at your school, in your community, and you lose your best friend or your girlfriend or your lab partner, and you're 17 or 18, it affects your life forever. And, and that, that ripples out and out and out. And we know that the African-American community has had to deal with the personal grief of losing your children over and over again, compounded with the political reality that it seems like a lot of people aren't motivated to help you change that, to help you amplify that story, to even hear you. And then on top of that, you have something like that news report that seems almost intentionally mean-spirited. She was a teenage girl. I mean, go look at Facebook. she, she I'm sure there were hundreds of photos of her as a teenage girl living her life the way it was most often lived. You have to make a conscious decision as an editor or a production assistant or a producer on a news segment, you're making a choice to decide which photo to use. And so that choice is really disturbing to me. I don't understand it. It's hard for me to get into the mind of the person who makes that choice to to show the photo of her holding a cell phone case that looks
1: like a gun. We do this a lot. That's so well said. I mean there we take horrible, tragic situations involving young black people being being murdered and we compound the grief by our portrayal of those people in the media, by the way that their bodies are sometimes handled. I mean there are so many aspects to the racism involved in every decision along the way. And that's not to say that any individual person is wholly responsible for that racism. It is to say this is a systemic problem, is a cultural problem. It is why people feel that they need to do the say her name kind of hashtag, because a lot of times her name isn't said. And this is a problem. And I don't know how we fix it other than. Talking about these stories and trying to do that with openness and sensitivity, it always scares me a little bit to talk about a story like this as a white woman because I think there's a whole perspective here that I'm missing. There's a, there's yeah. an understanding of the world that I don't have to bring to this story. So my thought is always don't post on social media about it. Talk about it so that I can add all of that with my voice, right? Because I never want to be just kind of throwing out hashtags to ride some wave of people's interest. Um, so I think this is all really complicated. And I am so grateful for our listeners who let Sarah and I know when we get things wrong about stories like this. But we can't ignore the death of an 18-year-old woman who was brutally stabbed in what seems to be a, a completely unjustified, unprovoked random way other than the color of her skin. So we we'll, we will continue to follow this and I hope that, th- that her attacker has been arrested and I hope that he is brought to justice very soon. Yes. We also are trying to stay on top of the troubling incidents at our border. More than 700 children are still in our government's custody without any hope of being reunited with their parents soon. I got to tell you Sarah, I'm Frustrated with all of the terminology that's being built around this Mm. to sort of sanitize it. I don't want to talk about reunification. I want to talk about do we have this baby back with its mother and father? You know, do we have this five year old back with her parents? And then our government says, well, we have ineligible parents. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, I was thinking about how this is a lesson in the very popular line that I've been guilty of saying that I want the government to run like a business. This is a lesson in why that analogy just does not work. I can see a meeting where someone says, maybe it'll keep people from coming here if we take their children. And somebody says, what the hell, let's try it. The way that you might say, what the hell Buy that building? And we'll see how it turns out. Mm -hmm. But this is the power of the state Being brought to people in the most intrusive way that I can think of. The only thing I can think of that's more intrusive than this is the death penalty. And there was no planning around what might happen and no seeming comprehension of the fact that you have to bring these people back together. I don't understand what the end game is here. Does our government want to retain custody of these children? I can't imagine that that's the case. That is exactly my question. I mean, after the meeting,
2: where someone says, here's an idea for prevention through deterrence. Let's try this. Why isn't anyone else at that table learning from the lesson that we have supposedly learned time and time again, that you have to plan for the day after? Yes. Yes. You have to plan. I mean that's your whole job when you work in government is planning systems is looking at the logistics and trying to execute. This is such a story about cruelty, human rights violations, but it's also a story about government incompetence, which so no matter which point on the political spectrum that you critique the government, there's a huge thing to critique here. A couple weeks ago when you and Sarah were discussing this, And talking about how you talk to your kids about it, you brought up what I thought was a really profound question, which is that we are grappling right now with whether or not America is a place or an idea. Mm -hmm. And I've continue to think about that question. I think it's a really important question for all of us to consider. But while we figure that out, there are real human beings That's right. who, whose lives are held in the balance while we figure out what we want to do there. And it's totally unacceptable. Everything about this is entirely unacceptable. I, d- I don't know what else we can do except draw a hard line and say, We do not support politicians who support these policies. We will not forget about it. No matter how many weeks go by, no matter what other sideshows happen in the news, we have to keep our eyes on these children. They are real children. They are real families. And the idea that some parents just gave over their rights to their children and self-deported and now our government doesn't have a responsibility to reunify
1: those families
2: is also unacceptable.
1: Yeah, I read some very far right wing commentary about this in the vein of the media has lied to you about this whole story. The fact of the matter is these parents don't want their kids. Now, I don't believe that. And I think you have to ignore metric tons of credible reporting to the contrary to get there but let's say you get there and let's say these parents let's say you genuinely in your heart of hearts believe that parents are bringing their kids to the united states for the purpose of abandoning those children again this is patently false but let's say that you get there in your mind our government does not have the power or the skill set or the infrastructure to take custody of those children. And I am blown away by the fact that our government seems to be acting like it wants to retain those children in its custody. Why are we asking people to self-deport and sign away their rights to be reunited with their children? Why would that even be an option on the form? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me.
2: None at all. In order to get to that point of accepting that premise, you would also have to ignore every single minute of your own life experience, right? I don't know a single parent in any situation, and I've worked in prisons and jails for 10 years where people are regularly separated from their kids. The one thing I hear over and over again is about how much people love their kids. No matter what else, that is a universal standard, it is absurd to believe that people who are risking their lives with their children to give them a better life are then doing it to abandon them in a
1: detention center. And so nonprofit organizations are left to clean up what our government has not done. And I think it's, if you're looking for what can I do, It's continue to donate to those nonprofits, continue to volunteer if you have skills that are valuable to those nonprofits, because we are now going to have private citizens trying to find parents who've been deported from the United States in order to get their children back to them and then going through a process that seems to have yet to be determined. on on how you get those children once you find the parent. The impacts of this policy are going to be with us for generations. You know, you talked a second ago, Sarah, about how you're just not equipped at 17, 18 years old to lose a friend and how damaging that is for the entirety of your life. I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. I can't imagine what their lives or mine would be like if if we went a month without any contact right now. And and how long that would be a present for us and how damaging it would be to our family and to each of us as individuals. And then when you multiply that out and you add in factors like language and the treatment that people are receiving, and then think about the damage this is inflicting on the people doing this work. Absolutely. We are going to suffer this for 50 years in ways that we can't even imagine today. And it's, it's just, and and it's all, we chose every bit of it. Exactly.
2: This is a problem we created. We did not
1: have to be in this position right now. Well, we will continue to monitor this story and bring you updates as we have them. We're going to switch to our gratitude moments now because we have had a lot of things that we are not grateful for so far. Sarah, what is your gratitude moment today?
2: I was thinking about the car fire, which is continuing to grow and rage across California. Um, And I just wanted to acknowledge that I'm grateful for the incredible bravery and self-sacrifice of firefighters who work to contain those fires. Um, Firefighters are first responders who often have to puzzle together a bunch of different incomes. It's often seasonal. They aren't paid a lot of money, but they run into fires. They do incredibly dangerous and difficult work to protect our citizens and to preserve these incredible landscapes that so many Americans enjoy each summer. And um, so far, there are three firefighters who have been reported to have died in service to this cause, and their names are Brian Hughes, Don Ray Smith, and Jeremy Stoke. And I am so grateful for their service and to their families for the sacrifice that they've made.
1: I completely agree. That's so well said. I am grateful for school summer nutrition programs because I think a lot about how many children depend on schools for their meals. And I'm grateful for the growing number of programs that address those issues and the reporting that's being done to make people aware, because I think a lot of people, especially if you don't have kids in school, especially if you don't have kids in a school that has a high population of free and reduced lunch, you just don't even think about this. You don't think about a snow day as a day that keeps a child from having breakfast And I'm grateful for the work that's being done. I'm especially grateful for the Food Research and Action Centers work because they are really analyzing and measuring what's happening in these programs and setting objectives for the future. They have a wonderful report that we'll include in the show notes that really helps you understand who is being fed, how they're being fed, and what needs aren't being met yet and how we might go about meeting those needs. So really important work that I think gets missed by a lot of us.
2: Absolutely. I was so glad when you sent that because it really made me remember that that is such good and important work.
1: Yes. We are next up going to talk about the good and important work that you do every day, Sarah, and about what's happening in our prison system across the country.
0: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer. in My personal opinion And $30 off your first box when you go to WildGrain.com slash Pantsuit. That's WildGrain.com slash Pantsuit. Or you can use promo code Pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pantsuit.
1: Okay, Sarah. You spoke right to my heart when you said you wanted to talk about mass incarceration. So I would love for you to help people who are familiar with that term, but for whom it doesn't really mean anything specific, get their arms around what we mean when we say that we're the most incarcerated nation in the world.
2: Mass incarceration is a huge problem. It's right there in the name, mass, Um, and it involves a lot of component parts So when we said at the beginning of the show that we have about 9 million people who are interfacing with the legal system and the prison system, that includes at any given time about 2 million people who are actually locked up in facilities. That's all kinds of different facilities, juvenile detention centers, prisons that are run by your state, prisons that are run by the federal government, county jails, detention centers for immigrants. So if you are upset about what is happening on the border right now, that is a component of mass incarceration and how big and how far-reaching this problem is in our lives. We're the most incarcerated nation in the history of the world. In addition to those two million people who are living their lives inside a cage, You have 7 million people who are on some kind of probation or parole, which means that they could return to jail or prison or be sent to jail or prison even without committing an additional crime. So if you are on probation or parole and you miss a meeting, you can't pay a fine, you're late to an appointment. Depending on your specific situation, that can mean that you go back to jail or prison. It also means that you're disenfranchised from a lot of different things in your world and your community. And so that's where we get that 9 million number, is that 7 million people who are just always on the edge, who are being surveilled. Um, and who are in an active relationship with the legal system, plus those two million people who are who are sleeping in a prison tonight,
1: and so that makes us, on a per capita basis, as I understand it, with the exception of a few like tiny islands, the most incarcerated place on earth. Yes. Which is so at odds with talking about America as the land of the free. I Totally. And, and especially because our crime rates would not justify that situation. We are not the most crime-ridden place on earth. No, not at all. By a long shot, right? But we are the most incarcerated place on earth.
2: Yes. Um, and, and like you said, it's especially at odds with our values and the idea of America as a place where we value freedom. And the way that people sort of end up in the mass incarceration system is a really long journey. It is the rare person who has lived a full, satisfying, healthy, productive life, wakes up one day, commits a terrible crime, and spends the rest of their life in prison, right? Like that story would be tremendously rare. What we have instead are a lot of specific stories of individual people who had compounding problems in their lives that exacerbated situations that were already unideal. And that leads people into bad choices and, and choosing between a a variety of bad choices in their lives. It leads people to have, um, limited skill sets. It leads people into systems where they can't pay for lawyers, where, um, they're, they're basically being incarcerated in part because of poverty. I'm sure that a lot of people know Brian Stevenson's work, Mm -hmm. um, who wrote just mercy. And, you know, the quote that really sticks with me in that book is that in America, You are more likely to go to prison for a crime you didn't commit if you're poor than you are to go to prison for a crime you did commit if you are wealthy.
1: And that's, I think, an important thing to think about when you're thinking about the ways that someone gets into this system. So, my friend Kim, who runs a homeless shelter, was posting last week about how you have a right to a lawyer if you committed a crime, you don't have a right to a lawyer in an eviction proceeding. And a lot of people are evicted, and that sets off this chain reaction of horrible, really non-choices, right, but choosing among terrible, terrible options. And I think systemically, and I know, Sarah, you have a bunch of ideas about how we can make this problem better, but if we look all along the way at places where someone could, could have another chance, another opportunity, I feel like an easy one would be to make sure that anybody in an eviction proceeding has a lawyer. Because I worked, I, I did some pro bono work when I was a new lawyer in eviction court, and as soon as there's a lawyer involved, it gets worked out. Most of the time you are able to figure these things out. It's not good for the landlord or the evictee to have someone be evicted for non-payment if there is any other option, right? But you must have somebody with those tools. And when we get really honest about it, I think a lot of people end up in the court system because very early on, like you're saying, they were just missing a tool that those of us who are not in this, this life take for granted. Absolutely.
2: Um, my sister and I were having that exact conversation about eviction. She's an attorney and she's reading the book Evicted, which is a pretty big book right now. So, that's also a book that could shed some light on this. And, you know, part of that is the opacity that's in the system. So, we have created a system that you have to know a secret language mm-hmm. in order to access, and that's legalese. I mean, When you're an attorney, you learn a whole new system of language that allows you to navigate this system. And if you don't know that language, you are at a huge disadvantage when you walk into that courtroom. The district attorney um, in Corpus Christi, Texas, right now, is a really incredible guy. He has a really incredible story. And one of the stories he tells is he got a DUI when he was like a young man. And his mother said, I'm going to go to court with you. You don't need a lawyer. We're just going to tell, you're just going to tell them what you did wrong and they'll work with you. It's going to be okay. Well, of course, when he walked into that courtroom with his mom and said, you're right, I was driving drunk. What can I do to make it better? It was a massive upheaval in his life. That was expensive, that disrupted his education. And Right before him in that same courtroom, a kid who was exactly his age, who brought in a lawyer, left the courtroom with a totally different verdict. And so those missing tools become so important in where your life ends up.
1: You can see that so clearly if you spend a day just watching like a traffic docket because you see this spiral of somebody... Got stopped for a ticket, and they got a ticket, and they didn't pay the ticket, and then they're back in the system. Maybe they failed to appear for something. Maybe they were found and they had marijuana on them, and it's just like if in if anywhere along the way, someone had said, "Here are the skills you need. Put this on your calendar." You're going to live by your calendar. On this date, you have to show up in this place. When you show up, you have to bring these pieces of paper. Like I just take those kinds of skills for granted because I've been taught them from my infancy, right? Completely. But when you haven't been taught those skills from your infancy, now you're in a system where – and a lot of these court dockets, it's hard to hear – anyway, Mm -hmm. especially if the courtroom has a process where they're talking to people by Skype, essentially from prison. Right. So you're not even in the same room. It's difficult to hear. They're using a language you don't understand. Sometimes there are other language issues. Right. And you can see how it's just the deck is so it's like being at a casino with your life that is so stacked against you once you get into this process. And being at a casino
2: with your life is probably one of the most nerve-wracking experiences I can imagine, which means when you're in that situation, you aren't making well-considered, thoughtful, calm decisions about what to do next. Right. You're working at a very heightened level of panic that's causing you to make decisions that you might not normally make if you were sitting at your house surrounded with people who loved you and who were on your team and were explaining to you the different choices you might have in this situation. Um, so we're, we're just exacerbating personal problems with systemic dysfunction. And then we end up in these giant, piles of terrible choices to make, Um, and each individual person in that system from the police officer who arrested somebody, um, the bail bondsman, the judge, the DA, the prosecutor, the public defender, all of those people are making choices in an imperfect system, and any one of them could make a choice that then forever impacts your life.
1: And they're doing that from a host of pressures that are all legitimate too, right? So when you think about prosecutorial discretion, this is a difficult thing because we elect so many of our prosecutors. One, and no prosecutor wins by saying, I'm going to be softer on criminal punishment. That's totally. starting to happen in some <laughs> places, and, and we need more of it. I had the privilege of hearing Adam John Foss talk about that once. And he said, listen, if you are a young black person in law school, be a prosecutor, become a prosecutor. That's the best thing you can do for your community, because then you're on the side of making these choices. And that I, I was so moved by his comments about that. But we make it really, really difficult as a public for prosecutors not to feel a sense that they they must get the harshest sentences available to them. And it, it makes me think a little bit about when I was doing divorce work as a lawyer and mm-hmm. I would have these people in front of me who were in this terrible, terrible situation in life. And they're talking to me about all of these emotional issues flowing from the divorce And I always felt horrible when someone spent hours with me talking about their emotional issues because they had to pay me for that time I was sitting with them. And Uh so I started saying to people, listen, all I can do for you is money. I cannot help you in any way other than money. And you are paying me for this time. If you're going to pay for time to process the emotional side of this, you should do it with someone who's trained to do that for you because all I've got for you is money. And I bring that up because when I see a prosecutor, all he has or she has for a victim is a sentence. Right. And that really doesn't get at what the victim cares about either, but it's all we know to give them. It's such an important point because
2: while we can talk about making our laws sane and rational and humane and we can talk about upholding people's civil rights when they're incarcerated, at the heart of this, I think we want to impart justice for people who have legitimately suffered terrible, terrible crimes. Someone like Neil Wilson, mm-hmm. right? Like we want to make sure that whatever small comfort we could give To those people and their families that we're doing through the justice system. But the system we have now really doesn't speak to justice for victims either. Because when we lock people in cages for a long, 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 long time, that doesn't help a victim. That doesn't help a victim to know that that kind of crime isn't gonna happen to someone else in their community, that it's not gonna happen to them again once this person is released back into our society. What happens in those facilities, once we say you've done something wrong, you need to be isolated, you need to be put in a facility, what happens in those facilities then really matters. It really matters what happens to you on the inside in terms of what will then happen to you once you're back out on the outside, because very few people are going to prison forever. I mean, that is a whole different problem where we sh- we shouldn't be sentencing people to life without the possibility of parole. I-, I mean, in my perspective on this, but the vast majority of people aren't. The vast majority of people do a short sentence and then need to integrate back into all of our communities. And the one other thing I'll say about how this system doesn't work for victims is that it doesn't acknowledge most of them. Most of the students that I work with in jail or prison, I would be hard-pressed to find one for whom this is not the case, is a victim of a crime. So um, one sort of story I have about this is that the first time I taught a class of women Um, I was a pretty young teacher. I wasn't that great at it yet. And so I was using these very simple writing prompts where I would have everybody in the class write the same first sentence, and then we'd fill in the blank and keep writing. And this example that I used was no one ever asked me. And then everybody had to keep writing. Every single woman in the class, every single one wrote some version Of no one ever asked me if I wanted to have sex, if I liked to have sex, if sex felt good, if I wanted to have sex with men. That kind of an experience where you're sitting in a classroom full of women who all are echoing each other's experiences back at each other in this very sort of simple writing prompt was some real personal evidence to me. That our idea of a binary between victim and perpetrator is really insufficient for the context of people's lives. And once you get into that system and you are on one side of prosecution, your life experience is entirely diminished to, to what you did wrong and the context of your life it sort of disappears. We like things that are easy and simple. It makes us feel good and it makes us feel safe because none of us want to go to sleep at our houses at night and think, "Oh my god, something terrible could happen to me and my children at any moment." We want to believe that there are heroes and villains in the world. And we all know based on the evidence of our own life that it's so much more complicated than that. And our system has to reflect that if we want real justice.
1: I think you're so right. And I think you have beautifully touched on the reason that this isn't really a partisan issue, because if you believe in limited government, you have to be astonished at the overreach of government into people's lives, the way that we are depriving people of all of their liberty, all of their opportunity to make money, all of their opportunity to pursue a family and a happy life um, in sometimes very, very minor circumstances. You would think that if those of us on the conservative side of the aisle would say, this should be the absolute last resort. I got to tell you, I think... So at some point in the future, probably in my lifetime, we will not be able to believe that we ever put people in cages. I, I hope that I live to see that day when we think, how barbaric. I can't believe that we used to do this to other human beings. I have a real anti-authority streak, though. And, I, <laughs> and so I, like I get really riled up just about traffic stops and stuff. I just I don't like that kind of intrusion into life. So that's the sort of libertarian, I guess, conservative perspective. And then the human rights side of this, which is should be the other side of the coin, like we should have so much overlap between those two groups, despite the attempts to make it feel like an ocean between us. It's just clear that we have some bipartisan momentum around some of these issues. I think that bipartisan momentum doesn't go nearly far enough. But it's a start. Mm -hmm. But, Sarah, when you reached out about this, you talked about how the solution here is very much about moving away from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset. And I would love for you to talk about what you mean.
2: Yes. Working in prisons is, as you might imagine, really depressing sometimes. And once I heard enough stories that contextualized people's lives and their choices for me, I began to think about how so many of the people who were in my classes were living just with only a scarcity mindset and how that was driving crime and it was driving our punishment and our, and our legal system. And so I wanted to kind of stop, just imagine what would happen if I moved from this idea of there's limited resources in the world. Only so many of us can lead only so happy lives. Um, We have to take things away from people in order to motivate them to do good, which I don't think is evidenced in any of our actual lives. Um, And instead thought about what could there be more of in people's lives instead of less of? The answer is almost everything. And the answer is, if you want to see fewer people in cages, you don't need less of anything except maybe cages. You need more of everything else. You need more um, support for parenting. You need to make it easier to be a parent in this country and to spend quality time with your children. You need preschool. You need safe, fun schools. It can't be enough that they're just competent. They, We have to want our kids to love going to school and that involves the arts and sports and after school stuff and, and just making school something that isn't a punishment. It involves housing, like you were saying, eviction. So stable housing, affordable housing, transportation, public health. You know, we hear a lot about um, problems of, of mental health And our lack of support for them, and how that is part of what drives crime. In order to change that, we need a whole lot more people working on mental health. We need people who are hired to do that in communities. We need more treatment beds for any number of things that might lead people into these systems. Um, So, no matter what you do in your everyday life, there is something that you're adding to the world, you know, very few people sort of wake up and are like, how am I going to ruin something today? Um, we all sort of want our, our lives to contribute to the good of our society and our culture. And I think that for many of us, because prison is a secret that's hidden away outside of our communities, behind a wall, very intentionally, we don't think about how how is what I do every day going to impact whether or not the kid who lives next door lives part of his life in a cage. And if we can consciously declare that, that we want fewer people in cages, that we don't want the neighbor guy to end up in prison— I think we just naturally start contributing to that problem in very small ways, because I love what you guys say about like, what's your work to do? You know, not everybody's work is to be an attorney or to, you know, write and revise laws or to go into prisons and teach, but there are a whole lot of school teachers in this country. And every single school teacher in this country is contributing to whether or not each kid who walks into his or her classroom winds up walking out of that classroom and into a prison cell. And if there were more principals and administrators in our schools who made that not just a talking point, but a real objective in their school building, there would be less kids interfacing with the juvenile justice system. And all of that contributes to human goodness and cultural abundance and helping your neighbor have the same kind of joyous life that you would wish for your own children.
1: I think that's wonderful. And so you have Thought about cultural abundance, and it has led you to describe yourself as a prison abolitionist, which I imagine is a term not familiar to lots of people. Can you talk a little bit about what that means?
2: Yeah. So basically prison abolitionists are people who more or less feel like the whole apparatus around mass incarceration from policing to parole needs to be profoundly changed most of them say they need to, we need to dismantle those whole systems. A lot of times you're hearing this right now in the news with abolish ice. That term I think is confusing to people because when I hear the term abolish, I think it's about tearing things down, destroying things. But as I started thinking about cultural abundance in this context, I just moved straight to abolition equals abundance. For me, I am motivated by ambitious, <laughs> abundant goals. I am not very personally motivated by destroying things. And so I am more motivated to work on this problem consistently and intentionally when I think I'm adding to something. And so I do consider myself a prison abolitionist, but I think very, very little about destroying anything. I, I really focus on what we can add to our communities In the long term.
1: And, you know, I think the conservative reaction to some of what you have said, the knee jerk reaction, when you talk about we need more preschools, we need more mental health services is going to be who's going to pay for it. Well, I think the answer is we we need to spend our money differently. We're spending it today. If you don't recognize how much we're spending on the prison system, it's because no one's ever put the math in front of you. Absolutely. And this is another thing that we ought to think about in the way we treat our prosecutors, because a prosecutor who chooses to go for the maximum sentence in order to be tough on crime might be choosing to spend forty, fifty thousand dollars 50000 of taxpayer money to keep somebody in jail for an extra year. And for what? For what? Other than to say, I have this record. And so we have the dollars. We're spending them today. We're spending the dollars like They grow on trees around our prison system and especially around ice. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed. It could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. We can divert some of those funds into, it's it's kind of, to me, like moving from, let's do the best we can to repair this on the back end, to prevention, and and that's that's becoming our understanding of medicine, right? Yeah. Let's stop treating sickness, let's stay healthier. Totally. And I think that's what you're saying, like let's stop trying to piece together some form of justice post crime and prevent more crime. Absolutely. And that seems to me to be a goal that we could all share.
2: I think so too. And I think um one of the starkest uh, realities of that, of that financial situation is how much more it costs to incarcerate someone than educate them. It just does. It's like, I think the last time I looked this up, it costs something like triple per day to pay, to keep someone in a prison than it does to send them to like our best performing school, which is totally common sense. Think about it. We, we don't have to provide beds for children. We don't provide three meals a day. We don't provide constant medical support. That's the thing is once you put people into prisons and the number of people we have in prisons, also they're getting older. You don't stop aging because you go to prison. I mean, at one of the facilities I work in, there's a geriatric unit.
1: Well, and think about what's happening to people's mental health while they're incarcerated as well. You're not going to get healthier spending your time there. Yeah. So, Sarah, I feel like we've identified the problem (laughs) and talked about why it matters. You have this wonderful list of ways for people to do their work, whatever their work is. So you mentioned teachers. We've talked about kind of approaching this issue as voters. Tell us about what other work there is to do to help contribute to the solutions here. So,
2: if you work in hiring, if you work in HR, if you work in admissions for a school, you probably have an application process that includes a question about whether or not somebody has been convicted of a crime. Go to whoever the management is, whoever makes that decision in your workplace, and ask why that question's there and if that question could be eliminated. Because one of the things we do is we punish people for life. No matter what that crime originally was that they went into jail or prison for, once you have to check that box, it is really hard to get a job. So, And it's really hard to go to school. So that's one thing. And that's called ban the box. You can really easily look that up and find out what your community is doing about it and get
1: get involved there. And I want to just reinforce your point that Ban the Box is becoming popular legislation. But even if your community doesn't make that choice, your private employer can. Like you can choose for your school or your company to make those decisions. And even if the box stays, you can choose to still hire people. Right. Totally. So you can take as much agency as is available to you in these situations.
2: Absolutely. You can even make the choice to actively look for people who you could hire. Which brings me to my next sort of like you could do this really easily. Support businesses in communities that are disproportionately impacted by this problem. Okay, we know who those communities are. Okay. We know that they are poor communities. We know that they are black and brown communities. Go into communities and spend your money to help create abundance in those communities. There are fantastic businesses in those communities that need our community support.
1: That's right. And there are businesses that will advertise themselves as second chance employers. And it's Mm -hmm. important to me to support those businesses as well. Totally.
2: And you can really, really easily find lists of those if you just Google them. Spend your money there. If you are in the media, you need to make a conscious decision to represent people in the legal system with nuance and dignity, no matter which side they might be on on a given day. And that brings us back to somebody like Nia Wilson, who because of who she was, in a crime, was represented in a way that made it seem like she was complicit in her own murder. That is unacceptable in the media, and the media has a responsibility to do better in both visual representation of these situations and in our language. So that is something, if you're in the media, you can do that. If you're a person who feels like you just maybe don't know a whole lot about this, but are interested in learning more, you can commit to something really easy, like reading one book a year about the legal system. There are tons of great, well-researched, compelling narratives about people who might have a story that surprises you. If you if you aren't familiar with stories like this, one of them that I can recommend just off the top of my head is um, Dwayne Betts. He has an incredible story. He was Sentenced as a minor for a crime. He did time in an adult facility. And last year he graduated from Yale Law School. Um, and he is really changing the conversation. Read a book. And if you're if you're a person who um, is of faith, no matter what faith that is, if you have a house of worship that you go to, ask your faith leadership to welcome formerly incarcerated people into your faith fellowship. And ask that your church make an active outreach to do that. Ask what your faith community is doing to serve this set of, of our fellow citizens. Um, I think that's really important and something that people can really come together on. Um, because if there's any place that we kind of agree needs to do this work, it's where all of our faith tradition says no matter what you've done, you are still um, full of personal divinity. And um, you come to this world with as much value as anybody else. So ask your faith community what they're doing in terms of reaching out in this issue. Those are my big ones. I think the only last thing I I would add is that if none of that appeals to you, if none of that is your work to do, if you're on social media and you're having a conversation and something comes up about a crime, before you comment, just take one breath. And ask yourself, what could have been added to this circumstance that could have changed the outcome? And that's about that abundance mindset. What could we do in our communities to make sure this doesn't happen again, rather than just locking people in cages behind big walls and pretending they're invisible?
1: I think that is a perfect note to wrap up on, Sarah. Next up, I'm going to ask you what's on your mind outside of politics.
2: Okay. It is summertime. And so I'm just seeing so much about like, is your beach body ready? And I feel like if you have a body and you're lucky enough to be near a beach, you have a beach body yes. and you should go have fun. I, a couple years ago, realized that I had not allowed myself to go have fun at the beach or at a swimming pool in several years because I was dreading so much buying a bathing suit and going and putting the bathing suit on and then being in public. And I love the beach. I love swimming. It is my favorite time of year. And when I realized I had done that, I was just like, this is, this can't stand. <laughs> like This is silly. We gotta go live our lives and be grateful for the bodies that can take us into water and splash and swim and leave all of the like body shaming bikini pics at the at the shore.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I so agree with you. It's it's so uh, silly. It's also so damaging. Um, So I just spent a week at the beach with my girls who are young and young people just say very honest things right without any filter and so like mm-hmm. like my seven-year-old loves to point out I have really um, big arms I always have <laughs> I will for the rest of my life it's just kind of a thing in my family we also have have big arms and so my seven-year-old will, will make comments about like oh your arms are so squishy or whatever and it's really hard not to react with my own stuff to those comments. Mm -hmm. But what I always try to say is, yeah, they are. I'm so glad that you like them, you know? And I just try to make it where like, anytime we have a conversation about bodies, the answer is always people have different bodies. We saw someone super tall. She makes a comment about that. People just have different bodies. Some people are really, really tall. Some people are really, really short. You know, some people squishy arms like I do. And some people are really muscular. Like, I'm trying to be very, very neutral in the way that I talk about it because I don't mm-hmm. want to raise another generation of people who are afraid to put on their swimsuits and go to the beach. I I just want to kind of say thank you for doing that with your kids
2: <laughs> because it it really does kind of start at home. And the message we get from other women in our lives about whether how comfortable we are in our our different kinds of bodies. Um, I think that can make so much more impact than like, will you be in a deluge of terrible advertisements for your whole life? Probably. Um, But you can change the
1: conversation
2: around your house.
1: And look, you don't have to be a mother to do that. Can, could we all today commit that when we go out with our girlfriends, we're not going to be weird about ordering dessert? We're not going to order a salad when we want a steak. Totally. Let's just stop with the constant obsession about food rules. Now, If you enjoy Sarah, if Sarah were here, she'd be like, but some of us really love to talk. Great. Talk about it. Talk about it with your people who love to talk about the calories or um, the nutritional content or whatever. More of us, I think are at tables playing this game of who cares the most about their body image, which really equates to who feels the most shame about the body that they're in today. Totally. And I just would like to stop that. Exactly.
2: How am I going to punish myself while I'm supposed to be taking this moment to enjoy my life and instead refuse myself any joy or pleasure and instead perform how disappointed I am in myself for being here and being imperfect. And so I will continue to not do the things I want to do.
1: And we think we're doing that out of some like personal exercise and worthiness, right? I punish myself so that I'm worthy in some way. But what we're actually doing is saying to all the women around us, I'm observing every one of your flaws. I'm keeping score on what you ate. Mm-hmm. And we just need totally. to stop it stop, stop, stop it. Men do this too. I think more men are doing it. I think body image is starting to affect everyone. So I don't want to exclude men from this conversation. I'm just saying if we could start amongst ourselves, ladies, we could, we could make a big dent here.
2: Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I think men, men are impacted, but I gotta say, I think women are
1: the experts in this. I think that's right. We have <laughs> so, a lot of practice. <laughs> yes. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for doing this with me. It was a real pleasure chatting with you. Beth, thank you so much for having me. I really
2: appreciate it. And I really appreciate what you and Sarah are doing every week. I really look forward to Pantsuit Politics showing up in my podcast queue. So I just look forward to hearing all your episodes in the future too.
1: Well, thank you so much. And hey, if you also look forward to more Pantsuit Politics in your feed, We will be back on The Nuance Life. This week is actually going to be a lot about bodies and body image. I am sharing an interview with one of my favorite human beings on the planet, Anna Guest Jelly. She taught me how to be a yoga teacher and has taught me a lot of other more important stuff about life as well. And we get into all of that. So that's on Wednesday, tomorrow on The Nuance Life. Friday, I will be back here with a little bit of news and listener feedback. Plus, I'll be sharing an interview that Sarah and I did a few weeks ago about careers for military spouses. You will not want to miss that conversation. Also have a fun announcement. I've been working on a midterm elections resource because the midterms I think are going to be incredibly important. I always think voting is important and voting armed with information is important. So thanks to many, many, many contributors from the Pantsuit Politics community. I'm talking like 50 or so people have pitched in. We have a massive Google spreadsheet that we've created that lists races in every state and it has who's running. And some resources about them and some comments from people who live in those states or know those candidates, you are welcome to contribute. You'll see at the beginning of this spreadsheet. So we're going to put the link in our show notes and you'll see at the beginning of this spreadsheet, we have a list of shared agreements that if you are going to use this resource, you will only comment about races in your district or your state Unless you personally know the candidate. But I don't want this to become like 50 people saying, I've always hated so and so, and this person has to go. Like, we really want this to be on the ground, grassrootsy kind of information that helps you be a more informed voter, not some kind of weird PR tool for anyone. And if you contribute, we ask that you sign your name to it. Okay which I know that everyone in this community will do. I'm just sharing that these are the ground rules. So link will be in the show notes, read the shared agreements, peruse it. If we're missing things, add to it, please. This is just a, this is like our virtual kitchen table. We're all sitting here together, making something to share. The nightly nuance last night is going to talk about the budget and the possibility that is bananas of another government shutdown. I can't believe we're even saying those words. Tuesday. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about Georgia's gubernatorial race. Lots of good coverage of Stacey Abrams lately, and I want to talk more about that. I'll be with you there all week while Sarah is enjoying her vacation. Thank you again, Sarah Shotland. you want to take us out with a Keep It Nuanced, y'all? Keep it nuanced, y'all.
0: Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music.
1: Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash You can connect with us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram.